0: Lewis Graydon is the CEO and Managing Director of Fisher & Paykel Healthcare. Hiya, Lewis. G'day, Heather. Hey, congrats on the result. Uh, Obviously driven in part, as I was just saying, by uh, the sale of your ventilator parts that saved lives in the pandemic. Any idea how much the demand for your parts is up on last year?
1: Yeah, well, let me just say two things to that. So I just want to be clear. It's um, humidification systems that are used with ventilators and our Evo systems that are used with nasal high flow, uh, which is a you know developing ther- therapy that's becoming more and more popular to treat um, COVID patients. Now, to answer your question, that's a hard one because a lot of countries around the world have um, ceased um, elective surgery and and other thing, so that they can deal with COVID, what you can see in our first half result is the demand for the hardware is uh, very, very high, you know, 383%. That's nearly a five-fold increase in demand for our hardware. And the consumables that are used with every patient, one per patient, um, they're just tracking along uh, with that hardware being used.
0: Lewis, how on earth do you gear up to meet this kind of, un- like quite frankly, unexpected demand, right? Because it went from zero to 100 oh, virtually yep. overnight.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I was going to say, that's been the challenge of the century, Mm. maybe the challenge of the decade. Um, They're massive numbers. You know, we've added 2,000 people, 1,700 of them in manufacturing since January. It has been just a massive challenge. And um, all I can say is massive effort, massive commitment, probably from every single person at Fisher & Paykel Healthcare. Massive global cooperation in um, getting us the raw materials and shipping out goods. Um, and I do think to do something like that, you're building off a you know, really strong, solid base in terms of your business, your own business, your own people and your relationships with suppliers and customers. Yet to do that, you've got to be coming off a strong base. You can't turn that on overnight.
0: Did you, did you have staff pulling, what, extraordinarily long hours or anything like that?
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah, of course, um, during the... Well, we initiated our uh, formal crisis response at the end of January um, in February, March, April, uh, just, you know, it just rocketed away. Yeah, we were doing very, very long hours. um, When you're trying to pull forward, you know, it started as two, three, four, five, six, seven times the volume from your suppliers, Mm. trying to qualify alternate sources safely Um, working with countries and suppliers that have been locked down. Um, Yeah, it is long hours, and it's taken us um, a while. And across the world, um, you know, we have to deliver our products to a hospital. We have to train the staff. We have to distribute them in 120 countries of the world. So it's our distribution centers all over the world. And our salespeople... Spend half their time, during COVID, almost all their time uh, helping hospitals um, use the equipment, learn how to use the equipment, put procedures in place. It's just been across the board.
0: Lewis, it's, it's a little bit more complicated for you guys than it is for your average business. I mean, there were businesses up and down this country and around the world that um, have, you know, pulled out all stops to save the business, or in some cases to, to make hay while the sun was shining, strangely. But for you guys, oh. it was also, I imagine, an added responsibility of the knowledge that if you didn't, you know, pull finger, yeah. y- I mean, yeah. you were trying to save lives as well, right?
1: That's right and that's the word we lo- we use, um, that's the feeling we had, um, it wasn't making hay while the sun shines, it was we felt a responsibility for two of the therapies that um, are probably the front line to treat COVID patients in hospitals We're the world's dominant supplier and we felt that as a responsibility and, and, and uh, as a serious responsibility, you know, just When you know that you have people that are relying on you, um, I think responsibility is the right word. Mm.
0: Um, I see that the second wave is playing slightly differently. The New York Times has reported that no one is clamouring for ventilators. What's changed?
1: So, um, standard clinical practice, you know, if you go back to before January, was when someone, when a patient presents with the symptoms that a COVID patient presents with, standard clinical practice would say use a ventilator. And that's what happened in Wuhan, that's what happened in New York, that's what happened in London and Madrid in the early days. And what physicians learned over the first few months was there's a better way of doing it than going onto a ventilator because a ventilator is very invasive. There's a tube that goes right down into the lungs patient's paralyzed and the ventilator does all the breathing for them Mm. and it must be in intensive care and it takes a lot of people to manage that patient. Um, And what they learned for the first few months is that nasal high-flow therapy and that's our second um, product range, is, gives you a much better result. And that's where you're just delivering very high flows of air or oxygen through a nasal cannula. It's more comfortable for the patient. And in COVID, for most COVID patients, it was giving a better result. So hence the, um, the, the rush to acquire ventilators has come off a bit in most countries in the world. Um, You know, leading with that nasal high flow therapy, if they can, to reduce the number of patients or the proportion of patients that end up going on the ventilator.
0: Do you expect now that we've had the vaccine news from Pfizer, Moderna, um, AstraZeneca as well, do you expect that investor interest in F&P healthcare might just start to pull back a wee bit?
1: Um, so look, I wouldn't comment on investor interest or the share price or anything like that. I mean, we think our job is to uh, manage the business as well as we can, communicate our results to the investor community, community as well as we can, communicate our opportunities in the future as well as we can, and uh, it's up to investors to decide whether they want to buy and sell the shares or whatever. So um, that's how we think of it. And then back to your vaccine question, the vaccines um, don't affect our fundamental strategies in any way. And then our short-term strategy right now is to continue building manufacturing capacity, which we're still doing. Current plans go right out to mid-next year, but we're going to continue building manufacturing capacity until things stabilise. That's our short-term plan. And then our long-term plan is, that's a lot of hardware that we've placed in hospitals, certainly over the last six months. Um, And our longer-term opportunity, if you like, is... um, all that equipment we've placed in hospitals, that gets great results for not-COVID patients as well. Mm. So that's our future opportunity. Again, a vaccine doesn't really impact that either.
0: I want to ask, this is quite an awkward question to ask, but um, how do you feel about news like that? Because, of course, the world gets excited about the vaccine news, but then it immediately impacts your company's share price. Is it a bit bittersweet? Um,
1: I try to psychologically... um, um, divorce myself from investor responses and share markets and just stick to we're going to do our job as well as we can we'll communicate whatever we can about our business and if people want to make um, decisions based on one day's news or something like that that's up to them